Welcome to the uh, FI Garage interview series. Uh, I'm the economist and I have the accountant here with me. Hello. And, and we have uh, Shane, the author of Franklin Phi. On Hello. Hi, Shane. Hello, guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being on. I'm, I'm excited to be here. This is uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. Great on. We're excited, too. We have a, a few firsts today. You're our first author. Also, our first overseas interview. Yeah. And it's, uh, three, it's three o'clock in the morning here in Spain. I was going to ask you about that. You really <laughs> trooped it out to uh, wake up for this one, or did yeah. you stay up for this one? Oh, no, I, I, I took a nap. But that's living, that's living the lifestyle. You, you sleep when you need to, and uh, you get up yeah. and you do what you need to in the middle of the night. So. Right on. This is also the first time the uh, mechanic isn't doing our recording, so we're hoping our audio is going to be nice here. We welcome any feedback from the audience to tell us how we're doing. Well, Shane, uh, 3 a.m. is a great time to drink, so uh, <laughs> <laughs> what are you drinking over there? No better time. Um, I have my favorite beer from here in Spain. It is the Alhambra Reserva 1925. As the locals call it, they call it the Alhambra Verde. So it's a, it's a nice big green bottle. Nice. And We'll post a link to that in the show notes. So one of the things we usually do is read the label off of the beer. I know it's in Spanish, but are you able to do that for us? Yeah, I'll give you guys a quick uh, translation of it. All right, so it starts off, Alhambra Reserva, 1925, is a 6.4% super premium lager crafted with the best Czech saws hops, renowned for their delicate aroma and floral spicy flavor. Such nuances interlace with the toasted touch of selected local malts. This results in a complex balance between sweet and bitter, which grants a distinguished and differentiating personality to this beer. The Alhambra Reserva, 1925. Nice, 6.4%, that is a premium lager. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, we went to the liquor store and we got ourselves our own lager. Um, I'll let the accountant. Yes, I have the Lankford Lager from Axe and Barrel. It is a straw-colored, easy-drinking, North American-style lager beer brewed with Canadian malted barley and imported German noble hops, a style of beer you would want to drink after working hard in the yard on a hot summer day or battling dinosaurs at your local. Now, I'm not sure what they mean by battling dinosaurs at your local, but we'll try it anyway. Cheers, Shane. Cheers. So one of the things uh, we learned about you when we were preparing for this interview is you had some art exhibited at the Louvre. Yeah, is that the right? Louvre, yeah, the Louvre in Paris, France. Right. Um, I'm a big believer in finding things to suck at and then going <laughs> there. So in college... I took a photography elective, and it was horrible. I kept showing up to the darkroom with these fuzzy images uh, to develop, these, these fuzzy negatives. And over the course of that semester, I fell in love with photography, but I didn't really get any better. So um, over the years, I just kept after it, and I slowly developed my own style. When I moved out to San Francisco, I started showing my photography in galleries there. And then I showed in galleries throughout the West in the United States. On a whim, I entered, I entered a competition at the Louvre and I won um, the prize for best architecture photo. Very wow, cool. That's amazing. 
Yeah. So the, the height of my photography career, I, uh, I had an image in the Louvre. Hey, I mean, you're always going to get to say you had an image in the Louvre. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> yep. Cool. Was photography uh, strictly something you did as uh, a leisure activity, or did you ever uh, make any money off that? I was represented in, in San Francisco for, for a few years, so I've, I've made money off it. But like most pa- passion projects, it's, uh, it's a dump. You, you put a lot of money into it, and uh, the things you get out of it, you can't. You can't monetize. You can't calculate it. Yeah, it's yeah. a lifestyle thing, right? Absolutely. Well, I hear cameras are real cheap these days. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you said it's uh, it's three a.m. Whereabouts are you living exactly? I live in Malaga, Spain, which is in the southern Comunidad. Uh, it's like a province uh, on the Mediterranean. So it's the seventh large, or sorry, seventh oldest inhabited city in the world. Oh wow. Oh, wow. That's yeah. Cool. And are you actually on the Mediterranean? Yeah, I live on the Mediterranean. It's it's a really cool city. It's not traveled by by Americans and Canadians. I rarely see many um, North Americans in this part of the world. Yeah, it's funny. I haven't heard of anybody who's visited there. Yeah, most people just go straight to Barcelona and Madrid and they don't see the rest of Spain. Yeah. How long have you been there for? This is my second year. Oh, wow. Sounds awful. It's also the home. It's also the the birthplace of Pablo Picasso and Antonio Banderas. Are you living on the cheap there? Oh, you wouldn't believe it. So when I showed up last year, I moved from San Francisco, which is not cheap. (laughs) (laughs) The first the first uh, rent check that I that I paid. I did some calculations in my head and I figured out that one month of rent in San Francisco is the equivalent to 10 months of rent in Spain. That's yeah. you're getting some pretty good bang for your buck. <laughs> and, and it gets better. So if you think about it, one year of rent in San Francisco equals 10 years of rent in Spain. <laughs> right. <laughs> pretty nice. You're on a little bit warmer ocean too. Yeah, Exactly. This is the Financial Independence Garage, so why don't you tell us a little bit about your Financially Independent and tell us, you know, what your inspiration was and how you got there? Yeah, I don't know if I'll ever uh, come to terms with, with the term FI or Financial <laughs> Independence. Uh, it's definitely a lifestyle. Um, I studied finance in college, and I made the classic mis- mistake of taking out student loans. Uh, I graduated with about fifteen, twenty thousand dollars in student loans, um, but I was fortunate enough to to have a job when I got out of school. I took a job on a trading floor in San Francisco. It was there that I really started to develop kind of my roadmap or my my theory behind how I was going to get to the place I am now. As I was working on the trading floor, part of my job was to analyze companies and to look at their financials. And the more financials I looked at, the more I started to realize that my life is like a human corporation. I can, I can run my financial life like you know, a CEO would run a business. And when I had that idea, I immediately just opened Excel and went to work on developing my human corporation. So every month I track my profit and loss statement. I track my net profit margin, which you would also call your savings rate. Um, so I've got all these different metrics that I've tracked for the last 10 or 12 years now. And that, that's really how I 
um, had came up with this vision to get to where I'm at today. And now I know that you took a couple career intermissions in there. I know before <laughs> yeah. you got over to Europe, you took a little road trip across the United States. Yeah, yeah. So uh, just did you just get a little tired of the uh, the nine to five grind in San Francisco there, and then yeah, pull the yeah. plug. Think think about uh, working New York market hours in San Francisco. So I was waking up at three thirty in the morning. Oh well, <laughs> see now I don't feel so bad that we got you up at three. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> not 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 the first morning I've been up on a phone. Yeah, actually, I didn't even think about that. Um, I used to wake up at 3.30 and I would be on a morning call at 4.30 in the morning when I was working on the trading floor. Then you'd spend, you know, the next 10 hours just talking. As a broker, that's, that's your job is talking to your clients all day. So you worked on the trading floor. What's your favorite investment vehicle? My favorite investment vehicle? That's, that's, a, that's a good question. One thing I learned... Um, working on a trading floor is that there are professionals that you are trading against. So starting out, I always tell my friends and students to start with a little, start with a hundred, $200, start investing and, and figure out what you're good at. Over the years, I've learned that index funds are really hard to beat. Um, it's, it's hard to tell a 20 year old that, but you're not going to beat these professionals and sit there and trade all day long. That's, that's what they're paid for. So my favorite investment vehicle is they are or index funds. Um, but I still invest in, in individual stocks. I, I really enjoy investing and it's almost like a, a, a game at this point. Right. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt your, uh, your story of more fun things like, <laughs> uh, like trips across the world. Yeah, yeah. So after three years of working on a trading floor, um, I was sitting on, on the floor one day and I looked around and I came to this conclusion that 90% of the people, roughly 90% of the people weren't happy. That They were there for the wrong reasons. They were there to fight over money and for greed. You know? I wasn't happy. I was working long hours and I'm more of a creative kind of introverted person. And I knew that I wanted to leave. So right there and then on the trading floor, I bought a plane ticket to South America on my 25th birthday. And it was for six months later. So I worked for six months and I really focused on saving a lot of money. And I, I put in my notice and I took off on my 25th birthday. I call it my quarter life crisis. <laughs> I, back, I backpacked across South America for a year. I hit seven or eight countries. That was my first big slow travel adventure. That kind of got your uh, got yourself the appetite for the slow travel there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I think you went back to work for quite a while though after that, didn't you? Yeah, when I got back to the United States, I um, I pretty much figured out that I had to work in an industry that I wasn't sitting at a desk all day and that I was I was passionate about. So I took a job at a vineyard up in Northern California. Um, I was supposed to be there for three or four months. I was an intern picking grape samples. And after three or four months, they asked me to stay on for a little bit longer. And a year turned into 11. And when I left, <laughs> I was the vice president of the, of the winery. So. That must have been a pretty great experience. I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> I love wine and beer. So if there's got to be worse places to work. 
Oh my God. Tuesday morning, Tuesday morning meetings were uh, set down with eight, eight barrel samples of Cabernet and to taste through them with the winemaker and uh, the president of the company. That was our Tuesday morning meeting. So. That sounds like a rough morning. Yeah, <laughs> but, but at the same time, um, after 11 years, I, I felt like I wasn't learning anymore. Um, I, I just got to a point that I needed to get back into, you know, finding my passions and chasing excitement. Did you find the travel bug came back to bite you at all over yeah. that time period? Yeah. So I, um, this is two years ago. I, I left the winery and I bought a touring bike and I flew to Florida and I bicycled from Florida to California over the summer. It was a, about a four month bicycle trip. And I told myself that I'm leaving with no plans. I'm not planning on going back to the wine industry and that the path will reveal itself. And that's what happened. So you just set out on the bike and figure it out as you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I had one night of uh, hotel rooms booked. It was amazing. That's wow. not very far in advance. <laughs> no. Any highlights since you left the, the wine industry? You know, cycling across the United States, you learn a lot about yourself. And one of the things that I learned is that when you have basically two bags you're living out of, you figure out what you need to be happy. And I figured out real quick that I didn't, I didn't really need all that much to, to find happiness. So I've, I've been living um, kind of a bare bones, minimalist lifestyle the last two years. And the things that make me happy are traveling and the travel inwards, working on you know, writing books and photography and exploring who I am and, and my purpose in life. So and speaking of writing books, when did you start on the book? Um, so I've had this idea to write a personal finance novel for young adults for four or five years, but it really took these bicycle journeys to bring that out of me. I, I once heard the statistic that 81% of Americans feel like they have a book in them, but only 0.7 of Americans ever gone to write a book. And I was part of that 79% that felt like I had a book in me, but I didn't know how to get it out. And when I, when I hit the road in Europe this past summer, this past summer I cycled from Spain to Romania, I told myself that I was going to write three pages a day in my novel and that I was going to write a novel by the end of the summer. That's what I did. That's, yeah, that's good for you. Baby steps and I would yeah. never, I don't think I'd even be able to put three pages a day down. <laughs> Well, you're not a writer. <laughs> well, no, I'm barely literate, but that's neither here nor there. And that kind of goes back to your last questions about you know, kind of nuggets or life hacks that I've learned along the way. When you set out on a bicycle journey or when you set down to write three pages a day, these things in life, you, you, need, to, you need to break them down into simple daily tasks that are achievable. And each day that you complete your task, your confidence grows and your book becomes better. You start writing more, more miles per day. And that, that's how I approach my life. I've got you know, three or four projects that I'm working on. And each day I have these, these goals that are easily achieved. And I feel uh, fulfilled at the end of the day when, I, when I'm done with them. 
I think that's a really important lesson is things can seem really overwhelming if you take a big view picture of things, but if you break it down into small manageable tasks, I know in my life that just makes, I mean, all the stress go away. It's at least you can get your yeah. small wins in. And Absolutely. And, and the key is to set goals that you can achieve. You know, like everybody wants to set these stretch goals and the, you hear these podcasts, some of these podcasters talk about the 10 time goals. Like if you think 10 times bigger, and you only achieve half of that, then you achieve five times. But it's like, well, what if you just achieve the one time, then you, you never grow. But, but 100% of it. the time, you, you achieve the one time. Yeah, yeah. So Cool. But, you know, there's these mountainous tasks that we all face in life, and you have to break them down. You have to, you have to figure out your angle to approach them. So uh, you were writing three pages a day. I, I kind of think you might have – written more than three pages on some days yeah i actually i wrote my first novel in the first 60 days so i i had days where i'd write eight or nine pages i kind of gotten a, a rhythm where i'd write four days and take the fifth day off and just to rest and and work on my book so then about serbia i finished my first book and i decided just to keep writing and i i started my second novel and i finished that about two months later is there going to be two in the series or is it going to be a little more than that? It's going to be a few more than that. <laughs> <laughs> right on. You got to get it all out, right? I've, I've got notes for, for a few series. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Right now, right now I'm saying um, I've got two of them written and I am doing the Camino de Santiago. It's a pilgrimage in Spain. So I'm do wa- that this a walking summer. trail? Yeah, it's a walking trail. Yeah. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write the third book summer cool now the first book is is called franklin five you want to give the whole title yeah so the franklin five it's a personal finance adventure for next generation investors so franklin five is the main character and he's a junior in high school and he's obsessed with the stock market so it starts it starts off with him um, just obsessing over the stock market and trying to figure out how he can get a job and, and learn to invest. And then the book tracks him through throughout his junior year. Now you say how to get a job. I, I remember quite an interesting uh, idea that you had in the book for how a young person might get their first job. Is that how you actually got your job? <laughs> My first job was working at a deep fryer at a fast food restaurant. So you probably <laughs> showed up and they were happy with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, l- I learned the value of a dollar very early on. Right on. So uh, I think it's a great idea, but I'll let you explain it. Yeah. So yeah, when you write, you, you pull a lot of experiences out of your life and other people's lives around you. And I remember when I was looking for a job in high school, that I was so intimidated by hiring managers and I felt, I felt defeated because I didn't have any experience. And I kept hearing people tell me, well, you don't have any experience. What are you good at? And I never really had a solution to that question when I was a kid. And then as I was writing this book and I was talking about getting your first job or Franklin Fi trying to figure out how to get his first job, I had this idea for Franklin to come up with a fake resume to put down five years of his ideal career path. And then the first job on the resume would be the place that he was applying. 
So if he was applying at the movie theater, he would put the, the movie theater's name and then list the, the other four or five places that he was going to work in the, in the next year in his career path. And then, of course, he would tell the hiring manager, you know, this is a fake resume, but this is where I see myself, and I want you to be the first step along my path to achieving this. I think that's such a great plan for somebody walking in with no experience and no resume. I mean, I remember that as a kid trying to go get your first job and being rather intimidated by the fact that you, you essentially don't have a resume if you haven't had a job before. Yeah. And I, and I think like many things in life, you have to, you have to think differently. You have to approach them from different angles and it's not that serious. You know, life is fun. So have fun with it and do, and do silly things like that. Well, and I think a lot of people, you know, hiring managers are people too, right? They're going to appreciate somebody Absolutely. having a bit of fun with it and somebody who has a personality. Absolutely. And most jobs are, are speaking. You know, if, if you're a good public speaker, you can work almost in any environment. Absolutely. So Franklin had three friends throughout his, uh, his journey, I guess, age 15 year of high school. Now, his best friend was uh, Sam Smooth. And... <laughs> I really enjoyed that character. Um, it, it made me wonder if you ever watched uh, Boston Legal. No, I've never seen Boston Legal. Okay, is well, smooth, is there a smooth in it? Yeah, the head of the firm, Denny Crane, uh, misspeaks all the time. But of oh, course, okay. whenever somebody corrects him, well, that's what I said. <laughs> that's what I said. Yeah, so that was Sam Smooth to a T, I thought. Fantastic. No, Smooth is actually a nickname that I stole from, from this story I heard from another friend. I have not actually um, spent time with Smooth, but uh, it's how I pictured my friend's friend. And uh, I, yeah, that character I fell in love with. He's, he's hilarious. And uh, I think we all need to have a friend like that in our lives. <laughs> yes. But reading the book, I would agree that it's uh, definitely aimed at young adults. And I loved how how you hammered home the compound interest thing. I think, yep. you know, having read some books as a younger person, they didn't give the numbers like the personal finance books of today give the numbers. And yep. I think it's really nice to have what you can expect from a few years of investing to give you in life. So I guess my question is, why did you want to write a book for young adults? Were you hoping to, you know, turn back the clock or... fix some mistakes you made it's it's just that so um when i started to write this book i thought about um, what would i tell my 16 year old self if i could travel back in time and give myself advice what what would i impart and and that's franklin i I wanted to give all the lessons i've learned and put it into the 16 year old character and show young adults teens and young adults how to to get on this path of financial independence. And another problem that, that has been reoccurring in my life um, and in the United States, I'm gonna throw out some statistics and then I'll, I'll, get off, I'll get off the numbers, but listen to these. So the average college student graduates with $40,000 in debt and it takes them 21 years to pay that off. So the average college student is in, they're in their forties before they, ever get their student loans paid off. And then if you want to take it a step further, the average American, um, seven out of 10 Americans live paycheck to paycheck. So 70% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. That's just incredible to me that 
that's happening in the United States. And then the, the last number that kind of shows it all up is that 80% of Americans die with some kind of debt. So their whole life, they're living paycheck to paycheck and in debt. That's incredible, isn't it? It's insane, <laughs> yeah. You know, statistics can be made to tell you what you want them to yeah. tell you. So I'm curious if that's 80% with a negative net worth or 80% with mortgage debt, but it's still a huge number. Exactly. Yeah. No, I I agree. And um, I I think the point is that kids, when they, when they are signing up to go to college, they're signing up for, for a life filled with debt and and they don't really know what they're doing at the time. So I, I, I wanted to write a book to prepare them to at least make a conscious decision well, and I think there's there's such a lack of education in finance. I know in Canada, and I assume the same in the U.S. In high school, it's just not talked about. Yeah. So the kids exist. never learn. They don't know. And I mean, our college isn't nearly as expensive as it is in the U.S., but you can yeah. still you know, think you're making all the right decisions and nobody tells you and you get out of school and all of a sudden you've got 10 years worth of debt. Yeah, it's a real problem. And, you know, what people don't realize is, Debt is not just a dollar amount. There are hours that you owe. When you owe debt, you owe hours of your life. And hours are way more valuable than, than a dollar. Absolutely. I think it's important to, to say that you're not advocating against college. You're just advocating to consider your options and to look for alternative ways to get through completing college. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, completely. I, I think college is a great thing. I, I think learning is the key to happiness and you know, whether that's in college or community college. There's so much education out there available to people these days that, you know, you don't necessarily have to go into six figures of student loan debt to get a good education. Yeah, I agree completely. And even after um, undergrad, I would go back and take accounting classes at the community college or, graphic design classes. So, you know, there's ways to pick up um, classes for next to nothing. And it's things you're interested in and things that might actually advance yeah. your career or your interests rather than guessing when you're 18 at a path, a four-year path that are you going to like it or aren't you? Yeah, exactly. You know, one of the things I learned working at the winery is that it's hard to find a good bookkeeper and Accounting and bookkeeping is such a simple thing, but nobody learns it. So if you go to a community Hey, college, hey, hey, don't tell people that. That's how I make my money. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but, but, but we could never find accountants. And, uh, you know, there's, a, there's like a year period where I was our accountant. <laughs> oh, it's, it's amazing how much work people are turning away as accountants these days. Yeah. I guess I'll ask you, you know, is there anything else you, you want to add about the book? Yeah. You know, I think it's in life, learning has to be fun. And when I wrote this book, I wanted to write an adventure. I remember being a kid and, um, you know, the movies that I remember, they're adventures and the teachers that I remember from high school, they were, they were fun. They were exciting teachers. I, I wanted to go to class. So that's, that's how I wrote this book. You know, it's funny, it's, it's entertaining, but it also delivers a message. I think that's how we're going to get kids interested in it, right? Is 
this is actually something they're going to want to read. Yeah. Like you said, it's entertaining. Like it's, it's a story, but it's also educational, which I think is key. And, and the whole financial independence concept, it's, it's about free time. I, I, I will work for the rest of my life. Um, but it's going to be doing things that I love and I'm passionate about. Yeah, exactly. On your yeah. schedule. On your own terms. Absolutely. At three, at three o'clock. Three in the the <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right on, man. Uh, well, thanks for coming on The Garage. Where can people find out more about the book? So my website is thefranklinfi.com. So uh, thefranklinfi.com. And then you can also find it on Amazon. Right on. We'll put those on our uh, show notes. And, and I, get, I assume people can find you on the Franklin Fi as well? Yeah, I'm at the Franklin Fi and then also on Twitter as the Franklin Fi and on Instagram as well. Perfect. We'll throw that in the show notes and uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks, guys. I really enjoy listening to you guys. I, um, I walk to school some days and I, I listen to you guys. So it's, it's nice to, to catch up and finally meet you. Yeah, it was great to meet you, and uh, hopefully we'll be having you on again soon. Right on. Talk to you yeah. guys soon. Book number anytime. two. Yeah. Any, anytime, guys. I'm happy to come on. Perfect. Thanks, Shane. All right. Take care. Have a good night. Bye you now. You too. Bye. Thanks again to Shane Dillon, the author of The Franklin Fi, a personal finance adventure for next-generation investors, for joining us on the FI Garage. We had fun talking to Shane, and we hope you had fun listening to us. If you did, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or CastBox. We'd appreciate it if you left us a rating or even a review. You can also suggest maybe a topic you'd like us to discuss in the garage, a beer you'd like us to try, or a guest we should interview. You can follow us on Twitter at FI underscore garage, on Facebook, Financial Independence Garage. On Pinterest, we are... FI underscore garage accountant. And on Instagram, we are FI garage underscore M-E-C-H. FI garage underscore mech. Uh, thanks again, and we'll catch you next time at the FI garage.